0: This week, we went deep on supply chain and logistics. I know what you're thinking. Supply chain isn't exactly the sexiest topic in the world, but it's deceptively important. Every commerce transaction in the world requires interdependent supply chains. There are very few businesses where it feels like the proxy for the market size is some variant of GDP. Now, Amazon is a really obvious example of a business that would fit that description. And this week's guest, Shipwell, is another. I was really excited to speak with Jason Traff, founder and president of Shipwell this week. Shipwall has raised over $50 million to develop a supply chain operating system for the enterprise, transforming supply chains by replacing manual process with a fully connected logistics ecosystem. Jason and I talked about a lot in this conversation, but there were really three big topics to take away from. One, we talked about the fundamental leaps in quantum computing that power a company like Shipwall to exist. Two, we talked about how big of an opportunity this really is. And three, we focus on how he's grown 400% through COVID.
1: Jason, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, thanks so much for me. So happy to be here.
0: Yeah, Jason, really excited to have you on the show today to talk about Shipwell, uh, as well as your thoughts on the future of supply chain and, and operating a high growth business. But before we dive in too deeply, tell us a little bit more about your background and the journey to founding Shipwell.
1: Absolutely. So uh, I come from a really traditional background of being half Chinese and half Swedish and growing up in East Texas. So, um, you know, there are literally dozens of us out there. Um, and my, my background was traditionally finance, but uh, I was in Hong Kong working in a private equity shop when I started my, my first company that made it onto my resume. Um, it was an art reproduction company called Copycat Paintings. And we employed 1000 people and we shipped artwork to four continents. And our number one problem outside of the blackmail, extortion, and one kidnapping was always shipping. And we used to always joke that we solved all the other problems, but we couldn't solve shipping. And so um, I managed to sell that business in 2009, I believe, and then came back to the U.S. I got into MIT. Loan for business school, uh, which is my connection to Greg, my my co-founder at Shipwell. Um, and Greg's background is much more technical than mine. Uh, he's he's much smarter than I am. Um, but the part we bonded over was Greg had spent some time at McKinsey as a Fortune 100 supply chain uh, consultant, and he was telling me stories about uh, how some of the biggest companies in the world literally weren't sure if they'd spent two or three billion dollars on shipping the year before Uh, and much less you know couldn't tell you where an o-ring was and all the myriad of problems that comes with that and so as greg was telling me this i was thinking you know these are all the same problems i had with my uh, my painting business but i i was not a fortune 100 um, and i never really thought we would be good at you know shipping and so in this world where um, Amazon can put something in the back of your car and you can get full transparency and receive items in the mail in a day or two. How is it, there's such a big divide between business shipping and consumer shipping. And that was really the the core problem that Shipwell set out to try and solve.
0: Well, and it's really interesting because you you just alluded to it with the with the factoid of, you know, companies spending two to $3 billion in shipping and not having much visibility. I, I want you, Jason, to talk a little bit more about just the sheer size of this opportunity and, and some of the dynamics of the global market when you think about it. You know, when I think about it outside in, there's two elements I see to it. You know, one is there's there's very few businesses where it feels like a proxy for the size of the market is some variant of GDP. Um, and I, I think Shipwell falls squarely into that group. And then I think the other element is, you know, the dynamics in the global market and the complexity, just the sheer complexity when you think of supply chain in, in the U.S. And, and outside the U.S. Is, this material so talk, talk a little bit more about you know just the size of the opportunity and the dynamics of what's going on in business shipping today
1: absolutely Matt. i think that's a good commentary um the only warning i'm going to give is the numbers are really really big <laughs> so um globally you know we would look at the world as let's call it an 88 trillion dollar entity of which about 15 trillion dollars is supply chain focused um that is basically insane and of that $15 trillion, about a trillion of it is domestic here in the US. And so um, some of the takeaways are those are just really, really large numbers. Um, The second one is, to your point, uh, this is an industry that's really interesting because innovation acts as almost an economic multiplier. You know, so much of the value that companies like Shipwell create it's created by solving previous inefficiencies. So it's not even like a redistribution of wealth. It's just things are being done better. And I think especially now that shipping has really come toward the forefront of a lot of people's minds um, with work from home and, and, and that sort of thing that um, we're actually seeing supply chain speed up. And so, so much of this is how, how does shipping keep pace with people's lives today and in the future? Um, and how does it act as a way to, to basically really unlock the potential um, that exists out in the world?
0: And so what drives the complexity in supply chain, right? Uh, we'll, we'll talk a bunch more about, you know, we'll get into shipwall specifically, um, and, and how the business is addressing it. But just talk about, you know, what are they what are some of these underlying characteristics that drive complexity in supply chain right is it things like disparate data sets you know constraints like time how, how do you guys think about that um, that problem
1: yeah so um, let's let's take one step back and I'll, I'll set the stage um, So most uh, supply chain, logistics, transportation departments, um, you might be surprised, but they've never typically been the most well-funded department in any organization, right? Um, They've never been given extra budget to do innovative projects, for example. They're instead very focused on cost controls and um, mainly the CEO going to them and saying, hey, I want to reduce spend by 5% this year as opposed to last year. Um, So... So much of the complexity and the problems that come with it are are more types of uh, catch-up problems. So um, if you were to look at a company today, uh, let's say Peloton, for example, the problem that Peloton's gonna face is, you know, they manufacture units overseas. They then have to put those on a boat, get them into the US, distribute them around the US so that when someone goes online and orders, you know, a $5,000 treadmill, that they can receive it in a matter of days And have a great delivery experience that you would expect when you order sort of a premium product like that. And so uh, they will face all the traditional problems. Uh, They're probably doing a bit better and a bit more forward thinking than most, but um, They'll face all the traditional problems around talent and resourcing and supply chains. They'll also face all the problems uh, that you mentioned, which are um, data is held in disparate uh, verticals. most supply chains have never been connected. Uh, Apple recently made news because they said they were going to recent uh, be able to start shipping out of their retail locations. Uh, that's something that most companies can't even fathom doing because they all operate on different systems, you know, warehousing doesn't necessarily talk to your e commerce system, for example. So. Um, the data is a big problem. You also have all of the constraints. So you have all the regular business constraints of the bottom line and how do you balance the performance of a supply chain versus the cost, which, you know, it can be a top five line item. So it's really not atypical for a business that does lots of shipping to spend, you know, ten percent of all revenue on shipping. So it's a material cost. Um, and then you have sort of all the extraneous problems, right? So demand sensing, weather, traffic, and all these other things add uh, just a lot of complexity to supply chains.
0: And so talk about, you know, with, that's, with that stage set, Jason, talk about, um, let's, let's dive into what Shipwell is, right? Explain the company and, and the state of the business today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, we would describe Shipwell as a connected shipping ecosystem Uh, and specifically what we've built is what we would refer to as a modern TMS that stands for transportation management system. um, Would be the industry term. Uh, The difference with ours is we've integrated visibility directly into the product. As well as an integrated partner network. So um, when we look at how a lot of information can be siloed. This is our way of tackling it and saying uh, visibility should be a foundational element because it allows you to build workflow automation and provide a better experience both for your employees but also your customers. And the integrated partner network means uh, you probably have a lot of different business relationships, both with transportation companies and probably technology providers that you've assembled over the years. And so being able to bring them into um, a connected platform like Shipwell, it essentially gives you that one single responsive place um, to put all your data and that scales as you grow um, to support your, your shipping network.
0: And so you guys have a, you have a really interesting mission statement, right? I'm going to quote it. It's we want to take an entire supply chain and put it in a pane of glass united behind a restful API to integrate, automate and optimize how you run your business. Let's unpack that a little bit more. Tell me, you know, talk to me about what that means to you guys as, as a company in, in context of the, of the business today, but also just, you know, as a mission statement.
1: Sure. So, um, Shipple has been extremely fortunate. You know, we we're in a place now where we've grown something like 300 X over the last two and a half years. Um, Our marketplace now ranks as one of the top 100 uh, third party logistics firms in the US and our platform takes in 100 million rows of data a day and the part where that becomes really interesting is, you know, we see where the benefit of giving someone complete supply chain visibility and a service element. practically impacts their lives and so you know we're coming off of uh, probably the predictably bad part of the current pandemic um, which during the peak you know we we shipped over ten thousand pounds of medicine and over 50 million pounds of food to critical areas and when we start looking at the power of taking an supplier supply chain and putting it in one place um, we see where we're able to continue doing that at scale and really what shipwell then becomes is it becomes more of a supply chain operating system. Something that's open and flexible and extensible that plugs in and acts really as a middle normalization layer that can help with execution and analytics um, to give businesses the insight they need and, and sort of those those different levers to pull to make sure that they're able to continue meeting um, their customers' demands in the best way possible. And that's, that's really the, the mission of Shipwell.
0: I like the framing of supply chain operating system. You know, one of the things, Jason, I always enjoyed chatting with founders about on, on the podcast is, you know, beyond the canonical team product and market is it's kind of this underlying question of why now, right? You've um, you alluded to it a, a little bit before and and you've previously, outside of this conversation, talked about it, but there's this fundamental underlying idea of what's going on in quantum computing and, and how that, you know, the application of, of that leap in quantum computing is really powering you know, a new, um, di- um, a new uh, world in supply chain, right? A new dichotomy. Let's let's I want to unpack that a little bit more and why the application of quantum computing is having that impact on supply chain. But you know, for a lot of our listeners, let's just start with the basic concept of unpacking, you know, what quantum computing is um, and, and the role you know, that, that plays in, in building a, a data-driven business.
1: Sure. So um, there's a lot there, um, a lot of fun things to dive into. So mm-hmm. I will try and give a description of quantum computing, which my data science team will be very disappointed by. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm happy as a layperson person to um, try, try to relay it. So um, as I understand it, most computers function on a binary system uh, of ones and zeros, kind of like a light switch, something is either on or off. The difference with quantum computing is it becomes a little bit more like a dimmer where things can exist in both an on and off state, almost like a quantum state. And that changes a lot of the computational power that can happen as you start adding more of those components together, um, which is why a lot of quantum computers are measured in what they call qubits, which I believe are called um, quantum bits. Um, And so that is my very rough understanding because it, essentially at scale, could allow for much stronger processing power. Um, to your original question of, of why now, um, I think quantum computing is a really interesting facet of, of where supply chains end up. This idea of, of solving a supply chain to optimality in real time. Um, one of Shipwell's founding principles is always to be authentic though. And I think one of the things that we think about is Authentically, quantum computing might be the future of supply chains, but for most people, it's it's probably not their most pressing concern, right? Their most pressing concern is probably something around cost and performance and how something practically integrate, integrates into their systems. And so... Um, we view that as part of our, our mission to whenever a customer chooses ship well that they're choosing a long-term partner and the long term could only be a few years and quantum computing could be a material part of that um, but we also have to straddle the the practicalities of today which uh, for a lot of customers might still be excel so we really see the full spectrum of uh, what we would call sophistication in the space
0: well that that's that's a really interesting point because i think what often gets lost in in many of these sets of conversations is kind of the forward and and the you know the deep vision uh, but bringing it back to the practicality you know in in our business that that i run i I see the same kind of challenge when we're working with enterprise customers especially um there's a component of the conversation of you know what's the big breakthrough innovation and you know and and the kind of 10x product Uh, but there's the reality that a lot of these things are just captured on excel or so as well i think one of the interesting things when you think about this concept of qubits and again as a as a lay person as well from my side is you know, what most folks don't realize is, you know, even with a relatively basic data set, right? Um, you know, a couple hundred, you know, drivers, um, you know, a couple thousand orders over a planning horizon over, let's say, it's a, you know, a couple of days or a week or so. Um, you're already starting to talk about upwards of, you know, hundreds of billions of permutations. Um, and no computer, as a as my, again, lay understanding can, can really solve this you know, problem ordinary, could ordinarily solve this problem, you know, and forget optimality, you know, let alone in days or weeks. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about kind of this, this breakthrough and how you guys have built the algorithm and, and not so much from a data science perspective, but more so from a business and a practical perspective of, you know, being able to attain and and push towards increased optimality in the supply chain.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting way of framing it. So, um, like if I think about uh, my previous Peloton example, right, it's everything from manufacturing to transportation to fulfillment to the customer's delivery experience. And knowing how many different parties and how many different assets and how many locations and orders, trying to solve that to optimality, you know, even as a snapshot, not even trying to do it continuously in real time, you know, uh, you would end up with something like you were talking about, 10 to the 30th power of of options, uh, which is, I think, more than stars in the known universe and so um, it is already uh, nearly impossible to do and so um, i think we actually we did a public demo on this uh, we rented time on a quantum computer it was a I don't, maybe like a 14 qubit ibm computer and we took a really simple data set it was um, based off one of our customers anonymized data they operate a small trucking fleet of i think you know 75 trucks or so And we matched it against orders in just three cities in Texas. So just three cities, 75 trucks. And we basically found that um, it is already computationally really difficult to do that in real time. Mm -hmm. The algorithm that the team worked really hard on, which they definitely don't want me to oversell because they view this as a a journey that really the industry and especially ourselves are still at the forefront of is it is it is possible to solve that with quantum computing. It is probably not really very practical with today's quantum computers. You know this sort of 30 qubit um, sort of maximum. But uh, we also know that's not the end state. You know the entire industry of quantum computing is really a, a very nascent. And so um, this is the part where uh, I think IBM has promised a 1,000 qubit quantum computer by 2023. And so um, right now it's probably not the most practical, but as we see more connections coming online, and customers are, are asking for more and more real time uh, optimization, um, it does seem prudent to to at least start thinking about how we deliver that experience. You know, not only today in terms of where people are, but um, a few years from now when it might become incredibly important.
0: And how do you guys think about this when you're building? You know, when you're building the product, or you're you know you're leveraging the data science or so from a from a foundational infrastructure perspective. I, I think you know the analogy, Jason, in my mind is you know, whenever you're running a company, right, as an operator, and it's ostensibly high growth, um, the systems that you have in play for, you know, a five person team break when you need to be 20 people, right? And again, break at 100 people and 500 and on and on. Um, Is that the right way or the right parallel in which to think of kind of the way you guys have to think of infrastructure, um, infrastructural integrity, or more technical integrity? Or how do you think of you know, how your algorithms and how the product scales from a data perspective as you bring on board, you know, both more data sets as well as, you know, some of this computing power gets, um, you know, gets more impressive or can handle more load.
1: Yeah, I uh, I like the way you phrase that um, because uh, it, it feels uh, like I can commiserate with you on um <laughs> Someone once told me, like, if you're doing everything right, it'll feel like everything's on fire all the time. Exactly. Um, and for Shipwell specifically, because we operate such mission-critical software, we've never had the luxury of just moving fast and breaking things, because when things break, it really impacts our customers. And so um, the scaling challenges we've faced um, going through this sort of period of hyper-growth for the last few years... Um, it's present in all parts of our business right it's presence in engineering customer service data pipelines. I think almost everything that we've done uh, with meticulous planning and great care and effort from a really talented team uh, generally has broken on average every six months. And so I forget what iteration we're currently on in terms of like our data architecture and um, The integrations team, but we sort of always live in that state. Um, and I I think we're getting better about it, or at least the numbers are getting larger. But I think we've learned to embrace it as just sort of inevitable at this point, because even when we feel like we're getting a handle on it, um, you know, this past year has been incredibly unpredictable for lots of our customers. But um, they have put a renewed focus on supply chain software, which has been at least very helpful for our business. but it has meant that there's more data, more connections, more expectations than ever. And so I think we've seen uh, three or four X growth just in 2020 and in terms of the the data that flows through the platform every day, I think it's grown something like eight X over that same time period. And so as we look at how we integrate deeper into customer supply chains and the insights we look to provide, um, doing these things further and further at scale is sort of um, predictably um <laughs> predictably difficult uh, and i don't know uh, i i would like to think that at some point we get a, a hold on it and it becomes more more routine
0: you know it's it's so funny i think i think the the moments of hypergrowth are certainly those you know especially with an onset of an unpredictable event right our uh hyper in and of itself is challenging it's a great i mean it's obviously a great problem to have um, but when there's an accelerator type event like something like this especially for digital transformation it's, it's all the more challenging. I'm curious how you guys think about, I want to go back to kind of this optimality concept and the business case, um, or, or, or the, I should frame it differently, more so the ROI that's generated. How do you guys think about um, communicating that business case and, and the value of the business case or the measurable value of the business case? Do you think about it from, you know, we're trying to solve kind of Nervonic optimality and each additional You know, you have it down to the granular level of each additional second we save you, you know, generates X Y Z. And and for a lot of folks that are listening, that might sound like a um, excruciating level of detail, but when you're doing things like shipping, right, and it's two mile, you know, two day delivery, three day delivery, that extra five minutes, ten minutes at scale, right, obviously generates massive amounts of dollars. Um, How do you guys? How do you guys think about? that ROI and how do you internally, you know, how do you internally measure it? What are those milestones that you look at to say we are actually making the next significant leap in terms of driving value for our customers?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, We spend lots of time thinking about ROI, um, especially because ROI for our customers will change over their journey with us. You know, we talk about this curve of sophistication, which um, there are plenty of companies that we know really well that might spend you know 50 or 100 million dollars a year on shipping and manage it from excel or maybe google sheets if they're you know very forward thinking um and so how do we bridge the gap from that to our platform to the future of quantum computing and how do we think about the roi across that um so to answer the question directly uh roi is typically represented as a, a percentage of a company's shipping spend we work with a lot of mid-market enterprise customers um, that could spend $10 million plus a year on shipping. I think our largest customers do generally a few billion dollars of shipping every year. Um, so there's a wide range of ROIs depending on the implementation and the customer industry. Um, maybe what's helpful is why don't I take you through like an example of, of what Shipwell did for a customer. Um, and that way, I you know, I can talk more about some of the specifics of uh, what you know, just what the tangible benefits were. Would that be yeah, helpful? That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. So um, one of our customers is, we'll just call it a very large meal kit company. They they uh, make and manufacture and distribute meal kits uh, that you can prepare yourself um, as an alternative to going out or, or cooking something from scratch. And um, that customer achieved a 75% ROI in year one, um, which for them was more, multiple millions of dollars of savings. And so what they use Shipwell for is, uh, we came in and they had a distributed procurement team, you know, they have to buy meats and cheeses and lobsters and tortillas, and then ship them somewhere to make the meal kit to then send you, you know, a lobster ravioli, for example. And so they had their procurement team out, uh, not only buying the meats and cheeses and lobsters, but also doing the transportation for them. And um, that was really very difficult. And so One of the first things Shipwell did is we centralized all of that activity inside the platform so that as orders came in, uh, the procurement team was able to generate them inside the platform for the transportation team to take and then consolidate because it might be that maybe your meat guy and your cheese guy are kind of close together and you could actually tie those shipments together. Um, This allowed the procurement team to focus on procurement and making sure they buy the best product possible. And it allowed the transportation team uh, an easier way, a centralized way to just focus on managing transportation. Because for a business that's as time demanding as a meal kit, the performance of the supply chain really matters. So um, it might be the case that you know, they have a shipment of 10,000 pounds of potatoes uh, going into New Jersey on a Thursday, which means they have to um, assemble it, make the meal kits, and then ship those on Friday for you to receive them on Sunday, for example. And what happens is if the shipment of potatoes doesn't show up on Thursday, you're out in New Jersey in the middle of the night trying to buy 15,000 pounds of potatoes, which is not great, right? Um, and obviously carries lots of costs with it. And so, One of the other things that Shipwell did is because we have our own integrated visibility, we track shipments um, over a half dozen different ways, uh, depending on different modes of shipping. And so we were able to give much better visibility into where all their shipments were in real time. And so this in turn helps them to know, you know, maybe a shipment will be late, but at least they can plan around it better. And that helps to reduce wastage. And so um, there's a significant sustainability advantage, both for, for Shipwell and the benefits for the customers. That also has a direct correlation to the bottom line. Um, And then some of the other examples, you know, distribution is a really big one. So if you're making all your meal kits in the Northeast, for example, but a lot of your customers in California, that's a really long way to ship um, all those. And so um, with better analytics, you can start to understand customer patterns and distribution. Um, It can also lead to better procurement costs with demand sensing. Um, So If you were to think about how some of the largest companies in the world procure goods, they generally are able to, you know, beat down costs by quite a bit, uh, largely through volume, but also through uh, preparation. And so, um, having Shipwell and the the real-time analytics, that also helps with that. And then there's sort of this intangible part, which is, I think, um, I have three kids now, and uh, I've been on this this boat for a while, but, I think shipping is firmly part of the brand experience. So we order a lot of things to the house, especially now. Um, and for me, you know, I think as soon as I make the choice between ordering something Amazon Prime versus just regular shipping, um, that's really where shipping has become part of the brand value. And so um, there's this intangible part of how, how can you increase sales to increase customer satisfaction? And I think um, sort of a, a very transparent, smooth, well communicated uh, shipping experience is a really great way to do that. That also leads to you know increasing top line revenue as well. So um, that's that's a that's a high level overview of of some of the work we do for our customers.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I like the way you framed, especially that last part, Jason, because I had um I had Laura Barron's Wu of Shipo on on the podcast a while back, and she had a framing which I really liked, which was kind of this flipping of the funnel and saying, you know. Most folks, especially with you know traditional enterprise backgrounds, think of shipping as a cost center. Um, but you know we think of shipping actually as a revenue opportunity, right? And and the underlying logic was exactly what you were framing up, which is you know this idea of you know when a brand is um, you know shipping a product to a consumer, the entire part of you know from clicking order to receiving the box, opening the box, right, the feeling that comes with it, et cetera is, is really the first full interaction that someone has with that product and with that company. Right. And so when, when I hear kind of the way you, when I hear the way you frame out shipping and and the way you guys think about it also, one of the things my mind goes to is in this conversation, we spent quite a bit of time on, you know, the, the leaps and bounds and what happens on the data side and how that drives value. When you think of, you know, more so from a product perspective and actually translating the data into You know, insights are actually core. You know, functionality or features um, and unlocking value, right? As you described, to fully unlock value from the platform, what are the what are the next areas of focus? You know, for the company, how do you think about it more from a product perspective versus you know just the data, the reporting, the analytics, et cetera?
1: Yeah. So um, I know we talked about quantum computing for a bit, and I I think that absolutely has a role in the company's future. Um, In the nearer term, one of the things that we actually see is uh, our data science team spends a lot of time specifically around machine learning. And the way that we look at it is the power of machine learning, especially in supply chain, you really see it when it comes down to maybe suggestions or recommendations. And, um, you know, I don't think a lot of people would probably think about if they think about Gmail, they wouldn't think Gmail is the machine learning email service. Um, they would just think it's really easy to use and occasionally gives really smart suggestions like you, you wrote the word attachment, but there's nothing attached. Um, did you mean to attach something? And so when we look at supply chain, um, I think there's that room to provide a delightful experience. It's this idea that, um, you know, business to business enterprise software, uh, very rarely do people think about being delightful. But um, just because so many of our customers work at such high volumes and they focus so much on problems, any room that we can provide where automation can provide sort of um, an additional helping hand becomes really interesting, especially because as you were talking, um, these little differences, they can make such a big difference at scale, these tiny optimizations, these tiny, you know, fixing these tiny efficiencies. Um, And so for so many of our customers, that really becomes the driving factor of how we think about the product is how do we help them do two to 10 times more than they're currently doing? Um, and that becomes extremely important because what we're actually seeing is as the world has shifted more heavily towards e-commerce, um, these departments that have largely been viewed as cost centers, lots of them are having to do two to 10 times more activity than they've been doing maybe even just last year. And so, uh, so much of it is uh, product-led growth in terms of what do our customers really want and what's a great experience for them? And the other part of it is we know how tough the job that they're doing is. And so what are the tools that they would need and find really valuable in terms of just even keeping pace with um, customer expectations today?
0: I like I like that you brought up Gmail. I, I always think that the best businesses are those and, and the best products, right, are those that um, in which you get the idea kind of instantaneously, right? Like Uber also comes to mind. But on the back end are just incredibly complex to execute, and I think the uh, I think the often underappreciated element of um, you know intelligent email or you know click a button and you know a, a taxi pops up, et cetera, is actually just the sheer operational complexity. You know, in normal times, this is not an easy business. It, it's a business not just of bits, but it's a business of of, of atoms as well. Um, you alluded a little bit earlier in the conversation, Jason, that the growth for the business has been, you know, phenomenal through COVID. Um, I want to, I want to transition a little bit more towards, you know, talking about actually operating the business. Let's, let's kick off with, you know, how has COVID shaped the operational challenge, um, in light of the opportunity that it's also presented for Shipwall?
1: Yeah, it's, um, (laughs) uh, interesting and unprecedented, I, I suppose. Um, so, I mean, for, for all the pain that COVID has caused in the world, um, you know, Shipwell as a business has, has done really well and, and held up um, extraordinarily well. Um, as an industry, the way I would characterize it is um, my co-founder, Greg, and I, you know, we started Shipwell, you know, nearly four years ago, and um, we used to pitch people on why this was important. And they'd always say, you know, why the two guys from MIT, like you spend all day talking to truckers, like why would you do that? And our two bold proclamations were supply chains were gonna speed up, largely on the back of e-commerce, and that shipping was gonna become part of the brand experience. And I think uh, as we've been talking, um, both of those have become abundantly clear in these last six months. And so for us, we felt the core part of, of Shipwell's uh, vision um, take center stage. And that's been very gratifying for us. On the customer side, you know, I think uh, Jeffrey Moore wrote this book, Crossing the Chasm. And the chasm specifically refers to the gap um, of customer adoption between technology, you know, early technology adopters and the early mainstream. And what we've seen as we've been um, growing through COVID is that chasm has disappeared in large part. Um, It used to be that, you know, of all of our different customer personas a lot of them were very reticent to change and no one we talk to in the industry now still feels like supply chains will look the same five years from now as they did five years ago and so we feel this this massive tailwind that's pushing us as a business um just just by taking this collective consciousness that is as people are shifting more towards e-commerce and um home delivery that that has ripple effects further and further as you get back towards middle mile and even first miles of supply chains uh, to provide better visibility and better communication and better analytics just to be able to keep pace with that
0: how has it helped or hurt and i, and I asked this question kind of with, with great intent how has it helped to hurt being repeat founders during this time frame you know you're yourself you're a repeat founder greg i believe has you know founded a couple of businesses before talk a little bit more just about the experience of being repeat founders you know through Um, through an unprecedented experience?
1: You know, um, every company has its own set of challenges. Um, I remember when I went through Y Combinator, um, it was back when Paul Graham was still actively uh, involved. And he was talking about how Startups are like an onion of problems. You just keep peeling layers, and there are always more problems, but hopefully they're smaller or more manageable. Um, and I I don't know if anything I've done in the past has actually prepared me for COVID um, or managing a company and growing through COVID. Um, I think that you know we shifted towards a fully remote workforce um, in in one day. You know we have over 100 employees, and we had planned uh, a day as like a fire drill to have everyone work from home just to see what, what would break. Uh, and it was right when Austin, which was our, our headquarters was having its first outbreak. And that one day has turned into six months plus um, where, you know, we are now a fully remote business. Our, we have offices in Chicago and Austin, but we have employees in nearly 20 States now. And um, you know, for them working from home, dealing with the anxieties of the job and the world around them, we actually had a, an employee pass away from COVID, very unfortunately. Um, and, you know, dealing with that broader sense, I I very much feel for how difficult it is um, for companies to grow and scale and manage company culture through all of that. Um, I'm just very thankful that I think we have an amazing team, um, you know, in terms of executives, as as well as individual contributors that have really uh, embodied Chipwell's core values and, and work so diligently through this. Um, I, I think that every problem has been uh, different um, than we thought it would be, you know, I, I think that at least being repeat founders, um, you're able to pattern match some of these things. Um, but uh, I, I think, uh, I don't know if, if if I would have known a year ago what I knew today, I don't know how I could have been more prepared for this. Yeah.
0: You guys are, you're building the company in Austin, you just alluded, I mean, you're a remote company now, right, but you're building it in, in Austin. Um, you know, there's this age old Silicon Valley versus, you know, rest of the country debate. We, w- we won't get into that. I think that's a whole separate conversation in and of itself. But I do want you to talk a little bit more about Austin, right? Why Austin? How do you guys think about, you know, geographic expansion in the U.S. Uh, as, as you cont- continue to build the business? But I imagine there's an intentionality behind picking Austin that sometimes, you know, that serendipity doesn't exist in a, in a classical, you know, Silicon Valley, New York, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I you know I, I was a, a founder in San Francisco and we lived there for years and it's it's a fantastic place um, and for some businesses I think it's absolutely the right place to be. I think for for Greg and I, um, myself particularly, I I really love companies like Shipwell that are focusing on digital transformation of traditional spaces, and um, that was always my passion. And I knew how difficult it was to start a company like that. Uh, in somewhere like San Francisco, where the cost of living is so high, just because um, if you have to hire lots of people um, of very wide-ranging skill sets, uh, it can be cost prohibitive to do it out of San Francisco. Um, specifically for Austin, you know, I feel like feel like we found a really a, a great sweet spot where there's tons of fantastic uh, technical talent. There's lots of industry expertise. Austin, despite having no um, manufacturing base, is actually one of the largest and most active freight shipping um, cities in Texas. And um, it's also in a central time zone, which I think I probably always discounted before, um, just largely, you know, um, being a child that was fascinated with computers. I, I'm relatively untethered from the world of time zones, but. Um, There were times when, you know, as a venture backed company, I'd fly to San Francisco for meetings and my first meetings would be at nine o'clock in the morning. And I'd, you know, be driving into the city and I'd see all these people walking to work. Um, And I would just think, you know, it's already 11 o'clock in Texas and noon on the East coast. And uh, we've had employees in the office, you know, since uh, five or 6am central time, you know, making sure that our customer shipments that uh, we're managing are, you know, on track and I think that um, at least being central to the com- to the country, that central time zone and having that access to sort of um, probably a broader spectrum of, of, uh, of attitudes and sort of uh, a very traditional industry has been fantastic for us. And so uh, our second office we opened in Chicago, um, largely just because of the deep shipping routes that sh- Chicago has, but um, you know, as a remote forward business, our offices are totally closed right now, but even once we do make the decision to reopen them, we're going to remain a remote forward business. And so, you know, in the past few weeks we've found uh, amazing talent just all over the country. And so um, I think that's a trend that we'll, we'll keep with, but, um, Austin specifically has been fantastic for the company and shaping our culture.
0: You know, Jason, as we round out the conversation, um, this is, and this is a new question I'm asking to you know each of the founders on the show um and I want to get your perspective if you were to give the one underlying insight about supply chain you know that unlocks this massive opportunity uh for Shipwell to exist you know what would that be
1: Ooh that's an interesting one um you know I think I used to have to answer all of these why now questions um and you know, I would have this answer of this is a space that's going to totally change because of digitization and mobile devices and IoT and you know, uh, largely I, I still think that's true. I think that the current pandemic has placed a um, a renewed focus on supply chains as a source of innovation. And when we think about the sheer scope and scale of supply chains and how they touch really almost every facet of people's lives all across the world, the the most am- amazing thing to me is that none of it's really connected. Um, there are a few vertically integrated companies that have done an amazing job, um, but there are a handful of them in the entire world. And so when we look at how this space will change, um, companies like Shipwell that are able to take that information, connect it into one place and give people this uh, connected platform to operate their business and, and see everything from end to end in one place. Um, I'm really excited to see with the next few years hold, because um, I, I think like all of our customers, I firmly believe that this is no longer a five or 10 year industry transformation. I, I think it happens in the matter of months, if not a few years. And so um, once we're in this place where more and more companies can be vertically integrated from end to end and compete on this global scale. I'm really excited for what that means, uh, not only for Shipwell and the industry, but also for for consumers and how many more options and choices they'll have. And I think for me, that's uh, the most exciting part of this opportunity.
0: Jason, this was a this was a ton of fun to have you on the show today uh, and dive, you know, really deeply into what you guys are building. Um, very interesting time in the market, certainly, and, and you guys have a very unique uh, and nuanced approach to it. So excited to continue to watch the journey from afar as, as you guys scale the business and, and really take over shipping.
1: Thank you so much.